0: Welcome to episode six of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China often boasts of its impressive economic growth, claiming to be on target to become the world's biggest economy within the next decade. However, there is serious concern among high level government officials about two related problems, a falling birth rate and a rapidly aging population. The birth rate on the Chinese mainland has dropped to its lowest level in seven decades, and as Chinese people grow older, there may not be enough people of working age to support them, placing huge pressure on the public finances. Joining me now is George Magnus, Research Associate at the SOAS China Institute, University of London. And he's the author of the book, Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy. George, let's start with this question of whether China is on a trajectory to become the world's biggest economy. Is it inevitable? does it matter?
1: Well, I think it's about as inevitable as uh, the caveat is on the financial statement that every citizen in the world gets nowadays, uh, which is buried in the small print, which says that the past is no guide to the future. And um, if we wanted to solve the world by spreadsheet, then, of course, what China has uniquely accomplished in the last 20 or 30 years in terms of Uh, growth and development, actually would make it an economic powerhouse um, that nobody could ever compete with. And certainly, you know, larger than the United States within the next decade. I mean, the world doesn't really work like that. And, um, you know, we're talking about political economy here rather than the laws of physics or uh, of nature. Uh, And so if it were true that China were to become the biggest economy in the next 10 years, I mean, it would certainly give it bragging rights. I'm not sure it means much more than that. Um, because obviously in terms of income per head, China would still be quite a small fraction of of where the United States is likely to be. Um, But I don't think it's inevitable. You know, lots of things can happen. And we are now going through probably one of the most volatile periods in international relations and political economy since the Second World War. So economically, should we continue to speak of
0: China and the United States as two superpowers?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, they are the two biggest economies in the world. Um, I mean, China accounts nowadays for about 15 or 16 percent of global GDP. Uh, The United States is about 22 percent, 23 percent. Actually, the United States actually has undergone, uh, if you leave the pandemic aside, a rather curious kind of development in the last 10 years where it has actually retrieved uh, a share of GDP that it had lost in the previous decade. Um, so yeah, these two beer moths really are way out in front of it. I suppose you'd have to include the EU, right? The EU is pretty big as well. Uh, once you aggregate it all together, even without the United Kingdom. Um, but actually there are many things apart from just size of GDP that really matter. And, um, and I think that the United States is certainly uh, in a league of its own. And there are certain aspects of being part of that league which I think the Chinese think that they can emulate.
0: Well, let's turn our attention back to our main theme today, which is China's demographics. If the trend of lower birth rates continues, the Chinese population will begin to shrink in 2027. What impact do you think that would have on GDP?
1: I think, um, Duncan, the sort of incremental reduction in China's population actually, once we get into the 2030s and the 2040s and so on, and into the second half of the millennium. Um, I mean, it'll be significant, but actually much more significant is what's happening to the working age population. So typically we define this really as nowadays, used to be between 15 and 64. Nowadays, people talk about it um, as more like 20 to 64 because of the tendency of more people to go to um, university and college and so on. Um, In China, you have to make another amendment to that because the retirement age, the statutory retirement age in China is so low. It's uh, 60 for men and 50 or 55 for women, depending on on what they were doing in their careers. So what we see on current trajectories is an incredibly rapid decline in the working age population, much more so than the total population. So for example, working age population nowadays is about 850 million people and um, it's predicted that by 2050 it'll have fallen by about 200 million people to about 650 and then by another kind of 200 million people by the end of the century so this is a relentless decline in the numbers of people of working age Uh, and so this has huge implications really for uh, lots of things not the least of which is economic growth so if you think about a one percentage per annum compound decline in working age population, I mean that translates directly into a 1% per annum decline in, in China's potential.
0: I'm interested to know your view on the one child policy which ran from 1979 to 2016. Recently on this podcast we heard some disturbing stories about the way it was enforced with some women being marched off to abortion clinics if they got pregnant with a second child Looking at the one-child policy with the benefit of hindsight, do you think it was the right one for China to follow at that time?
1: There are a couple of issues here. I mean, the, one is a sort of a moral issue, which is whether it's ever right for the state to interfere directly with sanction in the reproductive habits of its citizens. And the other really is whether there was any ever any economic argument for the Chinese government to, to introduce the policy. I would say that by the time the one-child policy was introduced, China's total fertility rate, in other words, if they were worried about overpopulation, they'd already solved that problem, uh, I would say, by um, the family policies which were introduced in the earlier part of the 1970s, and which had succeeded in bringing down the fertility rate or the birth rate per woman, to about 2.4, 2.5, maybe a little bit higher, between two and th- two and a half and three children per woman. Um, and so, what the one child policy did really is rather than have a dramatic increase on the fertility rate and the population size, it had a major impact on gender imbalance in China, um, which exists to this day. So, you know, typically countries will have you know, male, female or female male gender imbalances of about 102 to 105 of one sex to the other. But in China, um, it got up to about 130 boys per 100 women uh, a few years ago. It's come down a little bit since then, but it's still uh, pretty chronic, actually. I mean, China's not unique in this regard. You find this in a lot of Indian states as well. Um, but it is, uh, it is a huge distortion in the gender balance of the of the country which is if you compound that with you know rural poverty uh, low levels of educational attainment and so on and so forth um poor uh, job prospects for older people. Um, I mean, this kind of male overhang, so to speak, uh, is a very, very uh, damaging legacy, I think, from the one-child policy. But I don't think there was a justification for this um, slavish control of population, which had already pretty much been been conquered.
0: So the one-child policy was relaxed in 2016. Now families can have two children or more, if they wish. But many choose not to do so why do you think that is
1: well my sort of crude response to that is income per head which is probably the best known contraception that mankind has ever experienced so less you know colloquially of course it means that basically the the better off people become the less inclined they are to have large families or large numbers of children this is a kind of a global phenomenon uh, not just unique to china but I think in China also, one has to take into account the cost of child care, um, which is quite high, uh, the availability of readily available, um, I should say, readily available child care, uh, which in kind of rural areas is not uh, not great, uh, other than through grandparents and great grandparents. I mean, that is a sort of a, a familial uh, phenomenon, which I think is is not Uh, common in the West, but certainly is very widespread in the Chinese countryside. It is a phenomenon that we relate very closely to um, to rising levels of, of income per head. Family size goes down.
0: I noticed at the big political gathering which took place in March 2021 in Beijing, China's leaders agreed that all restrictions on people having children should be lifted, not immediately, but within the next five years. This seems to be a recognition by the state that something fundamental needs to change in terms of demographics in order to prevent what I suppose are seen as serious social problems.
1: It is interesting to see this because we've not, um, we've not seen this really spelled out in the same way in previous longer term kind of planning documentation. And they do talk about um, that China needs to kind of strive to achieve what they call "quote an appropriate birth rate," whatever that means. Um, more importantly, I think, from from a demographic point of view, is the um, commitment, such as it is, to a, an increase in the statutory retirement age uh, in what they call a phased fashion. Now, we we lack details at this point about what um, uh, the government. Uh, officials in the government actually mean by these things and what policies they'll actually introduce. It's very difficult to basically push up the fertility rate um, through uh, the means that most people have tried. Most people try tax incentives, cash incentives, counselling sessions uh, to people. It doesn't really work, to be honest. I mean, we don't know to be fair whether in 10 or 20 or 30 years time we'll still be having as few children as we do today or or whether you know people's habits will change but as far as we can project into the future this kind of low fertility looks looks here to stay the retirement statutory retirement age change though is really really overdue
0: There's a new five-year plan for China, which is being followed by the Communist Party. It starts this year, 2021, and continues until 2025. And one of the themes is developing a coherent strategy for addressing an ageing population, including better care for old people and more childcare for young families. How do you think China is getting on with these social care issues at the moment compared to other countries?
1: It's quite difficult, really. I mean, they, um, the, the pension system is pretty widespread now. So um, I would say, both with regard to pensions and to healthcare, there's fairly broad coverage now, which there they didn't used to be. And, and a lot of these changes uh, to expand coverage were introduced um, during the 2000s, so before the current uh, government was uh, came to power. Um, but uh, changes, incremental changes, have been made, um, and uh, the plan talks about, um, or there has been, maybe not buried in the in the bowels of the plan, so to speak, but there certainly is discussion about the government um, getting banks and insurance companies to set up a uh, an institution in what they call the third pillar. So the, the first pillar of pension provision is the basic state provision. The second pillar really is about corporate annuities, which um, people can um, participate in, but it's quite small. The third pillar is, is voluntary retirement savings, um, which is even smaller. Um, and that's really an opportunity that China could potentially use to try to expand the uh, coverage of pensions or the and the, the amount of pension provision, which people can uh, potentially benefit from but it's a it's a long process and so um, I'm sure lots of people have heard the expression about getting old before you get rich uh, which was uh, introduced or it was certainly cited several years ago to describe the situation in China where the speed of aging is so uh, high in other words it's so fast so you know China will measured by the proportion of people aged over 60 or 65, China will age in the next 22, 23 years as fast, as quickly as Western countries did in almost a century. So they're doing this really with an income per capita. That's a fraction of where we were, you know, 10, 20, 25 years ago.
0: Let's talk about the movement of people through China and how that affects society. There's been a huge wave of internal migration from the less developed regions in central and western China down to the more developed east coast and to the south. It's led to a younger population down south compared to, say, the northeast of China. Could you say something about the way migration flows are affecting the demographics?
1: Yeah, I mean, this uh, obviously, as I think everybody, a lot of people know, that there are, you know, probably close to 300 million rural migrants um working in chinese cities uh or in um, not necessarily always in you know beijing and shanghai and so on but also in in cities in inside china's provinces so um the, the provinces that, that are sort of inland and in the west but the the movement of migration has undergone quite an important shift actually in the last 10 to 15 years so let's say if you go back to around um 2000 and 2000 to 2010, the vast majority of migrants were what what are called long-distance migrants. So they would have left their homes in the countryside, gone precisely as you describe, to the coastal provinces and to the dynamic parts of China that were kind of exploding, whether it was because of exports or whether it was because of um, foreign direct investment, which was, uh, you know, spawning new factories, or simply because of China's own uh, development. But in the last decade, I think there has been quite a big shift of migrants that um, are, are not kind of taking advantage or going sort of long distance, but actually are moving to cities within their own provinces so um, as of 2019 for example uh, of the 290 million migrants roughly speaking rural migrants that there were about 40 percent of them actually were um, what what we could call you know short distance migrants in other words that they it's not that they didn't travel far from their home but they didn't they didn't cross provinces in order to become migrants in cities in other provinces but they stayed much more within their own Uh, provincial uh, localities so that's been kind of one big change but the the demographic change in terms or the demographic shift in terms of age is also true of course migrants tend to be younger people uh, men and women looking um, to leave the farms leave their rural communities earn more money you know join the sort of lights the lights on the nightlife and so on and so forth Um, and um, so consequently yeah younger people obviously are the people that make the difference in terms of shaping the, the, the development of cities in, in recipient places and the places that they tend to leave tend to become very, you know, demographically tend to become older and more decrepit, really.
0: So this podcast is called China in Context. I want us to consider China in the regional context. And it's not only China which faces a demographic challenge, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, they also have aging populations, don't they?
1: They do. Um, and, and, you know, and, and China is not certainly not unique. I think it's it's different in the sense that China is probably the most rapidly aging country on the planet, not the oldest by any means. But, uh, but it is a common phenomenon um, amongst countries in the rich world, in the poor world, in the emerging world. It's just a question of where you... St- where you happen to be situated. So uh, China is a very rapidly aging country. Japan is probably the oldest country uh, in the world measured by median age and and other kind of uh, demographic metrics. But um, Taiwan, um, South Korea, as you say, Singapore, um, all have um, uh, aging populations and uh, are having to adopt um, welfare policies and economic policies to try to mitigate the consequences of aging on their working age populations and on their economies. And of course, their advantage in doing so is that they're already rich countries. So they, there's, a, there's quite a lot of cushion that they can fall back on in order to, uh, to finance and fund programs um, that are needed.
0: So, George, let me finally ask you how would you feel about getting old in China? Is it a country which you think could give you? a good quality of life in your 70s, 80s, or perhaps even older?
1: In terms of, you know, would I be confident about being looked after? Uh, I think, I mean, I think older Chinese citizens pretty much can be confident about that because there is a kind of a familial um, kind of support network which many can fall back on. Uh, which is uh, which is really really important Um, and communities are really important for people to you know be part of and belong to but financially and uh, work-wise I mean if we nowadays think that you know retirement you know we we feel like we don't really need to or want to retire from working even if it's sort of uh, more uh, not quite as intensive as it is when we're 40 and 50 but if we think we can still work when we're 60 and 70 and 75 that's something which is quite difficult to envisage at the moment in china because it is very very hard um I mean, older people do not form, in, in, at least certainly in urban areas. Of course, in in the rural countryside areas, you know, there's always kind of work for people to do, provided they're physically capable of doing it. But in urban areas, um, uh, you know, where obviously a lot of the population is kind of growing and moving, um, it, it's not so easy, I don't think. And um, I think there's a there's a lot for um, the government to basically contemplate and think about um, about how older people and older citizens who will become, you know, there's going to be hundreds of millions more of older citizens in the next kind of 20 or 30, 40 years, uh, how they will spend their time, what they'll be doing, how they can be productively employed uh, up to a point where they feel that they don't want to work anymore.
0: Thanks, George. That was George Magnus, author of the book Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. And you can find out more about the SOAS China Institute on our website, which is SOAS, that's SOAS.ac.uk. Dot dot Alternatively, type SOAS China Institute into a search engine, and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context Podcast team.